Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Book Club. For this, we're welcoming back for the third time one of our favorite guitarists, Kevin Armstrong. Kevin was here years ago to talk about his own career, working with David Bowie, being a member of Tin Machine, working with Iggy Pop, Morrissey, Sinead O'Connor, Thomas Dolby, all of that. Then he came back for a deep dive shortly after that to deep dive Iggy Pop's Blah 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 album. And now he's here to talk about his own memoir, Absolute Beginners, uh, Memoirs of the World's Greatest Least Known Guitarist. Is that right? It's a, it's a mouthful, but it's great. Anyway, he recently put this out. It's named after this song, Absolute Beginner, which he helped David Bowie to write. Uh, it tells all these stories and more. We love him and we love his stories. And I want to get this out in time for people to maybe add it to their Christmas list or check it out over the holidays or whatever it might be, because I think it's a wonderful depiction of how you have to sort of grind and go and the ups and downs of creating a music career, especially one like Kevin's, that probably doesn't turn out the way you think it's going to turn out. Not everyone's does. In fact, he kicks off the book with a description of where he was living the and what the day was like leading up to playing at Live Aid with Bowie. And it's so, it's just, the imagery is amazing. You, I mean, He was basically living in a squat. And to go from that squat to Live Aid and then back home to the squat afterwards, it, it's just the roller coaster of emotions for all of this. Not just that day, but his whole career is really amazing to me. And then sort of the victory lap near the end, being able to just play with Iggy Pop for a decade and be the in, uh, uh, in-demand guy that he is now. We love Kevin around here. I wanted to share his book. I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, I know you'll enjoy the book. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Okay, um, before we get into the book, why isn't your solo album on Spotify run? Well, I, I, you, we, I was talking about that this morning with my missus because we were talking about keeping up our barcodes and all that subscription shit you have to do for that. I, I, I personally, I just boycotted, I just opted out of Spotify I, because I of Daniel Eck and because of the appalling, uh, uh, miserable return the musicians are getting from it. And he, they're just getting richer and richer and richer and musicians are getting poorer and poorer. And I yeah. just felt like it was didn't feel right for me to be there. I wondered. Knowing you and your political stances and stuff like that, I yeah. thought, I bet, th I bet this is on purpose. I asked because yeah. I play this game called Music League with a bunch of friends where someone picks a theme and then everyone has to pick a song that fits the theme and Spotify from Spotify and every, they make a playlist and then you vote on what songs you like best. And I want so badly to put Lucasites of Love on there or something, okay. you know, and right. uh, but I never can pick it because it's not on Spotify to do so. But All right. anyway, well, as you've asked, maybe I'll make an exception and stick <laughs> it up there for a while. <laughs> you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Well, I mean, I certainly want the reach for the music. You know, that, uh -huh. that, that bothers me slightly that that's you sort of you're sort of channeled into this couple of avenues only to get your music out there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, of course, I would like pe for people to be able to find it and for it to go on people's playlists and all the rest of it. And I know what yeah. the reach is, but, um, you know, it was my yeah. choice. It's okay. I don't blame you for doing that. You got to take a stand. Okay. If you don't mind, I wondered if you would read the last two paragraphs of your introduction. Okay. So, I've got the book here in front of me. Yeah. So the reason the I'm asking two is... two paragraphs, yeah. Yeah. From, from one morning at Angus House. Yes. No. The reason yes. I'm asking is because I want to paint a picture here. This is the day that you... Um, this is where you're living when you get whisked away to cold. go play. I'm sorry. That's okay. Do it. Um, this is the this is where you're living, and this is the day that the that you're getting being whisked away by helicopter to go perform at Live Aid. Correct. You the, live the in this day. plot in Angus yeah. House, and yeah. so I want to I want to I want to paint a picture for people of you know we see the rock star life we see this gigantic stage with playing in front of millions of people but that morning and that night when you went home this is where you went 
Well, that's right. And just for some background, squatting in the was a thing, you know, in London where you could just bust into an empty house or flat and kind of uh, semi-legally live there. You weren't supposed to do it, but, you know, there was a kind of thing that you could do if you had no money and you were homeless or whatever you could do it. So my book says, one morning at Angus House, I woke to the sound of sirens. The place was soon crawling with police looking for a guy with a gun. Happily, it wasn't Hubert. He was the previous tenant who I'd taken the flat off. Another time, one of the relatively scarce fathers who lived there on famille was taken away for sexually abusing some of his ten kids. Directly beneath my flat, the pervasive odour of sewage kept bubbling up in the warm weather. The sounds of smashing furniture and high-pitched screaming could be heard for a week until the police came and carted away one barking mad tenant who shouted that he was a monk in training as he was locked into a secure vehicle. It took three days' work by people in hazmat suits to clear the bottles of piss and boxes of feces from his flat. It was from this humble, illegally occupied dwelling that I went on that unusually quiet July morning to catch a helicopter across the city with David Bowie to play guitar next to him at the biggest rock concert in the history of the planet in front of a global audience of a billion souls. From that day to this, my life would never be the same. I, I mean, I, I love the entire book, but I will never shake that imagery of, like I said, you woke up in the morning and that environment you went played the biggest concert in the world and then yeah. you went back home to that back environment I, yeah. it's just shocking to me i mean so, it's, yeah i mean i've painted a picture of it as a chaotic kind of really sort of a low rent place and it was but i i wouldn't want people to get the opportunity that i, that I would uh, to to think that i was always looking over my shoulder if it was a terrifying place it wasn't quite often it was uh you know yeah. it was a good place to live but it certainly was humble <laughs> yes. it certainly wasn't a, yes. it wasn't a rock star palace no, by any means <laughs> no okay so here's a super weird nerdy question that i want to know about i was re-watching the clip and and i want to know where you keep your stage clothes because if you if you lived in a squat like that i'm guessing you didn't have you know, an entire wardrobe full of rock star. Oh, we just, you know, it was just a, a rail, you know, you'd, 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 you'd hustle up a rail from somewhere just to, you know, like a row, like you see in a shop and uh -huh. just have some hangers on a rail. That's, that was in the bedroom. That's, that's what we did. We used to beg, borrow or steal bits of furniture or yeah. go to charity shops. or it was, uh, it was what you could, what you could lay your hands on. Yeah. So you're wearing white pants and kind of a black shirt with a pattern on it and your red sunglasses uh, they were blue pants they were part oh. of a suit yeah they oh. were part of a suit i think it was actually a lloyd johnson suit i don't know whether you know about johnson's there in no. america jo lloyd johnson had a couple of shops in the king's road in chelsea and he's a very influential guy uh definitely you would have seen johnson's clothing on rock stars like l certain leather jackets very very ornate leather jackets i still own one of those and oh. and western style kind of shirts and things like like the scully ones you get in america but very rock and roll and johnson was like the rock and roll uh guy making clothes then and i did have a suit uh, a blue suit that i wore at live, live aid which was a johnson okay. suit it was okay. a very lightweight summer suit and i was just wearing the pants on on stage with the with the shirt you know got it shirt yeah okay so you know, I'm guessing that morning or the few days leading up, you're looking at the rail in your squat. You're thinking, you're looking, maybe the, all the rock star clothes have been pushed over to one side. <laughs> and you're like, let's see, what, what, what should I wear to live? I just I think it was my this. smartest. It was, I think it was just my <laughs> smartest shit that I could rustle up that day. You know, I don't think I was terribly. I did have those shoes. Those red shoes are great. Uh -huh. I've got a photograph of them somewhere. Uh, really nice. Um, they were like brothel creepers with thick crepe soles and they were red with like a red fur top and I, they, uh, were, uh, they were really nice i wish i still had those <laughs> <laughs> oh see this kind of like just behind the scenes you know we see the facade and the rock star image but behind the scenes people are in squats with rails like picking out what they what they should wear to the biggest concert all of ever. us in that band were semi you know semi-legitimate citizens at that point <laughs> i think thomas dolby was a little ahead of the rest of us right. uh, possibly but but many of us lived in very makeshift circumstances yeah. for sure <laughs> so funny <laughs> okay speaking of thomas dolby you say in the book that he had the best set of ears you've you'd ever come across when you say that I, I'm imagining what you mean, but what, explain it to me. 
just a person who can hear the difference between things that normal people just cannot perceive you know i've been i've been in a room rehearsing with a band with thomas and he'll just stop the band and say uh check this out and it and he'll be hearing something that no one else has noticed and it will make the difference and uh he's just very 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 uh his ears are just amazingly forensic you know in terms of what he can pick out and i think that's why his records i mean anybody familiar with his records will know how technically great they are they sound Mm -hmm. you know they're alongside various other things i can think of you know like steely dan records or certain peter gabriel albums or something people engineers use them to test out pa systems because they're so amazingly well crafted as as sound and he and that's just it 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 seems to be he has an inherent gift for for that kind of uh perception you know i agree yeah especially on the flat earth which i'm with you i think it's just his and his masterpiece and a masterpiece in general in fact around the same time you came back on to deep dive the blah 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 album matthew came on to deep dive the flat earth album right and um just coincidentally uh thomas heard it or found out about it and then started like live tweeting about it and it's one of our top 10 most popular episodes because of his like Great. diving into it and promoting it or whatever and yeah anyway. well like i say in the book you know people used to ask him in interviews what could be improved about your records if you could go back and he'd always say nothing and uh-huh. I, I just thought that was such a sort of i thought he was joking at first and i realized actually he's not joking he really means yes. that. nothing at all he did it because he mopped up every last yeah. you know uh uh thing that he wanted to do on those records yeah i agree Very impressive by, yeah by the way speaking of squats uh you talked about being in a squat with tom bailey of thompson yeah. twins and matthew yeah. was in the early version of that band as you know and um green guard side from scritty was also sort of a yeah. squatter back in the day yeah, when you see that. guys like that who come from these from your similar sort of humble beginnings and they become pop stars with bright, shiny, sparkly pop songs and stuff like that. That must feel so counterintuitive than the people you knew, you know, in the squat next to you. Um, kind of, yeah. I think there was, a, I mean, obviously there's a certain kind of political slant people have of they're able to sort of squat and, and maybe their musical choices are made like that. Some of the people I talk about in the book, My Neighbours with the Slits and Rip Rig and Panic and bands like that. And they were obviously way on the left of, uh, of the whole music world. And then there was Tom Bailey and then there was Green who came out of that same scene, definitely very alternative scene. The early Squitty yeah. Politi records, you hear them, and they're extremely alternative. I mean, they really are. And really uh, are. and yet they went on to be mainstream pop stars because possibly what motivated them in the first place was uh, was a need to to break big. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't mean that they didn't just respond to the environment and the kind of cultural n- nuances they grew up in. So that yeah. was their first platform the where they could do something and then as soon as they could they broke big and why why not you know uh, some people would 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 never want to do that and other people definitely would so it's it's all about the life of a performer what you want for yourself isn't it and do you consider yeah do you consider those that kind of sellout moves or do you think it's do you feel like they are as sincere about making perfect way as they as they were about making the early yes, stuff uh, yes i do knowing those people i i thought they were they, they were certainly sincere creators for sure there's no way that either of them were were, were doing anything that was a cynical yeah. thing at all i mean it may not have been pleasant the way they got there ditching their old you know compadres in yeah. such a summary manner but i don't blame anybody for that i i honestly think they were doing so you can't fake that if you try to fake it then you're milli vanilli whatever you know right. but uh, they, there's no way they weren't being genuinely wanting to 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 bring what they did to a wider audience whether we like that or whether we don't like that they were True. sincere for sure i was listening back to your early solo stuff like how the west was won and it's not that different i mean it's that similar kind of post-punk skittery but also super funky and there's some dub undertone in there you know well that was that was all the things i was growing up like i write in the book you know i was growing up with reggae and uh alternative music and uh and and sort of you know ideologically opposed to the mainstream pop thing so i was looking for something else looking to break some ground i've always been looking for that really in music less so these days i'd rather 
do something that's really emotionally honest, no matter where it comes yeah. from, and yeah. uh, and pay proper homage to uh, influences and things like that without being afraid of a being uncool or whatever. Right. But I think that I was afraid of being uncool. And I really wanted to do something that was definitely different, mm -hmm. and all the rest of it was really trying, probably trying too hard, really. But um, it's interesting to look it back. It is. I love that <laughs> stuff. Um, okay, I wonder. Speaking of your musical projects, you talk i want i wonder if you'd share the story about the uh um oh, oh the bush telegraph that's one of your bands yeah. and you play a show where all these industry people are going to come to yeah. the show to get a feeling about you know how strong they want to invest in this in your new band bush telegraph yeah. and the show doesn't go well yeah and then you paint this picture about going home and realizing the show didn't go well and realizing you're broke. And the re the reason I want to stress on that is because I, again, going back to, that's why I like talking to people like you, because the disparity between what we think rock stars lives are like and what's really going on behind the scenes, which is just as normal as everyone else's life about worrying about where the money's coming from paying the bills. Sure. And uh, you have you, in, in any creative endeavor as well, you have failures and you have humiliations and, and, uh, uh, in any anything you're trying to do there are pivot points at which you think oh i'm at rock bottom or this is never going to work and then something turns around if you're lucky or if yeah. you're able to sort of wrangle uh, your opportunities in the right way but that's that certainly was a, a at the end of a uh and the the very important for me end of a an ambitious phase where I was trying to be a, an artist and we were signed to EMI and we had all the whistles and bells of a, of a major label um, endeavor. You know, we had the lawyer, we had the accountant, we had all the gear, we had the manager, we had all the video directors, we had all the budgets, we had everything was in place. Uh, the only thing missing was any success. And, um, and then when we got red lined by EMI, which is, they used to do, they used to give you like a few months or a year or something to be able to turn something around and then if you didn't if you if you weren't a success by that time some new regime would come in at the top of the company and just redline your whole thing and you'd be dumped and that's what happened to us and that wasn't the end of it because my manager was very clever and managed to um you know get the master tapes of the album the unreleased album so we we owned it so we had a little profile and there was this platform where we could say to every a&R department in London. This band has just left a deal with EMI. They own their own album ready to go. There's a little bit of a buzz about it. Do you want to come and see it? And who wouldn't? You know, they just go, yeah, that's the, exactly the kind of thing we can pick it up for cheap, maybe, and then we can promote it. And it's, it's got some legs. And then we blew it in one night so it wasn't a question of coming home and realizing it hadn't gone well it was the end yeah <laughs> you know once yeah. because there was nowhere to go from there in terms of the major platform if every major label had come to see us and then we had such a bad night because we were we were sort of billed with a and a band with an incompatible audience and then i lost my rag and and some audience members were heckling and it just got it just i just lost control of it and uh and it went really badly um, and so they all left. They all just didn't see what they wanted to see. Right. So they they left. And so, th so there was no opportunity left for us in that oh. world. So it was, you know, it was like literally sack the accountant, sack the lawyer, sell the equipment, even yeah. the next day. And that oh. felt like the end of something for me. And it really did uh, kibosh my whole ambition to be an artist for, for many years, even decades. Yeah. Um, I just thought that's not for me. And luckily for me, the universe caught me and yeah. pushed me into the orbit of people like Bowie and Iggy Pop. And, yeah. and so I, I was able to, at that point, realize, well, my abilities and my talents are required in the arena where I think they are, you know, in yeah. the big time. But yeah. it may not be that I'm in complete charge of it. It may be that I'm just, you know, working for other people. But that's okay. And yeah. that's where I've made my mark, if you like, yeah. as a sideman. Yeah to some of these great artists and and i've managed to satisfy myself well yeah i have the ability to survive in that kind of environment for sure yeah and it wasn't until years later i was uh, able to say well uh, yeah i can do my own thing again now without putting the pressure on myself of wanting to be a mainstream artist or whatever but that was it, it was just a, one of those pivot points that i have to look back and say that it was a good thing because it led yeah. me into my more natural arena as a producer and sideman or whatever sure 
It's interesting you say this because one of the things that was that became sort of I was noticing and and uh, a sort of, that sort of subtext of wrestling with what your ambitions and what maybe your dreams might have been for your career with what how it was actually panning out in real time and whether that was good enough and whether you were being satisfied by it and then at the end of the book you sort of talk about sort of confirm that in fact i wanted to write it down um there's a certain sense of that you mentioned about missing your calling did i miss it and i wondered if and i so i think about shows like that where maybe that was the sliding doors moment or the turning point where you know the what the dream ends and having to pivot and figure out a new dream like you just said and living with that it feels in some ways like you're still living with that yeah or maybe everything you just said is so positive mm -hmm. but i noticed the sense of like longing in a way yeah you know? of course of course i would love it if it had worked out because i still consider myself a, a songwriter yeah. and uh, and part of me really is is that and i can do that and i'm quite proud of some of the songs i've written and uh, so it would have been nice to get more recognition for that to find more in that but it's not a great sense of loss in that you know, I don't feel my life's been a failure. You see, I've been, no. I've really settled. I've really settled with the amazing opportunities that I've had and the amazing things that I've seen and the people I've met and things I've done. I'm really happy to have done that and extremely grateful for those opportunities. So, like, like you say, it is just a slightly wistful thing. Oh, well, that could have gone another way, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, and I really hope. I I I tend to think. I I sort of listen to things sometimes I've done even recently and just think, do you know what? Even after I'm dead, if someone loves this more than they, you know, that it's out there. Now, then I'm happy uh -huh. yeah. with it. Yeah, <laughs> my peace with it. <laughs> it was just such an eloquent way to talk about. I, I mean, I'm younger than you, but I have those same feelings at 50 of like, did I really? Did I do everything I sh could have done? Should have done? Is it too late? Did I miss my calling? Have I accomplished anything? Is anyone well, I there? think, it, you know, we're all looking for authenticity in life, aren't we? We're yes, all looking we to make a mark in some way, whatever modest way we want to do it. We're all looking to make something. And I can't, I can't escape the fact that I've had a very blessed career. You know, I yeah. can't, that's always in my face. So I, I can't be ungrateful about that or think that in any way I've missed something, you know, else. I mean, who knows? But, but it's, uh, I, you know man yeah. when i started to write this book it wasn't until you know my daughter kept going on at me like you know dad you've had such an amazing career and i wasn't talking about it for so long and then when bowie died and when i started working with iggy again i thought well i've got to start telling this story now i, I really yeah. have to and and uh i I'm, i can't be anything but grateful for that i'm grateful you did um <laughs> also I, I it's such a fun book especially having invested so much time in my life in you and what your projects are and what you deem worthy to work on and stuff so it was a it was tre it was a treasure for me to read because i care about all the things you care about um i wanted to ask you about it, it's interesting i had this thought actually just this morning as i was getting ready to talk to you because i was looking over my notes and one of the things that i had written down as i was reading is i thought it's so just the chances and you know this the chances of crossing paths with david bowie and getting him to like you enough to want to work with you and in the moment as i'm reading because i read the book on my phone i take a note on my phone and i said why does bowie want to work with nobodies and i no offense that's kind of what i was thinking of you and those guys at the time and it occurred to me just before we hopped on i thought it's not that they're nobodies it's that bowie bowie's entire career has been keeping an ear to what's happening in an, in the underground in that's not in the mainstream for and sure he used to ask me he sorry to interrupt you he used no. to ask me regularly what's going on kev what's going on in london yes talk, talk to me about some bands tell me about some things he was always like that and i think iggy pop is too they always want to know what's going on from the yes. ground up so yeah we might have been nobodies you're not wrong there we you know we, but you were that per that's why i it the switch the flip switched or whatever it is because i thought it's not that they're nobodies it's that bowie thought kevin was the guy whose ear was in the underground that he could rely on for the next new thing or the next big thing or the new sound or the you know what i mean yeah That's i mean i just compliment 
Yeah, it is a huge compliment, but I think he that's the thing about him. He he had a he had a nose for, you know, um just people creative collaborations. I mean Reeves Gabrell's man, he came out of nowhere for, for Bowie. He was just, you know, Sarah's husband and Sarah was a publicist on the Glass Spider or something and and uh so he got introduced to Re you know, got given a cassette by Sarah or something. And Reeves was just a Berkeley student among others, you know, jobbing guitarist and uh and uh and Bowie had this had this unerring kind of nose for for people. Yeah. I'm sure he met and as as many people it didn't work out with as he sure as as it did. But uh I'm grateful that he 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 recognized something that sometimes you don't even recognize it in yourself. I just, yeah. I just think is he is he really does he really mean me? Does he really want this? You know? And I yet, know. And yet history history has uh, exonerated his choices, you know, because exactly. he had a way of picking people who could work together and work with him together. That's what I mean. Is that the guy could have chosen to work with anyone he wanted. And yeah. he and like you said, there may have been millions of them, but only a few bubbled up to the top in order to stick around long enough. And you were one of those people. That's amazing. Sure. I mean, he even tried to work with Tom Verlaine. He told me, and it didn't work out. He, really? he he did some recording with Tom Verlaine, and he tried to form a, a creative relationship with Tom Verlaine, and it didn't work. He said it just didn't work. He just just they didn't didn't meet, you know, in the wow. middle somewhere. So there you go. I mean, that, you know. Wow. I wonder if that was around the time of him covering Kingdom Come. On, uh, well, uh, scary it must have been it must, must have been then or just just shortly yeah. after i mean shortly after then yeah for yeah. sure yeah wow yeah see you never know speaking yeah. of bowie will you <laughs> this was kind of a mind-blowing part um i don't want to give out all the fun things about the book because i want people to read it but you him asking you for some cocaine <laughs> you tell me the book the cocaine and both well the story. story the stories appeared before in public because i oh, did tell okay. paul trinker i did tell paul trinker about this story for for the book starman but the first day we met yes he did ask me for cocaine and i did make a phone call for him got some coke delivered and it did come from angie bowie <laughs> and uh the story's in the book but it's like it's a what a ridiculous coincidental weird story <laughs> but uh, but but having said that, you know, that was the very last time I ever saw him or knew about him dabbling with anything like that really? over yeah. the entire period I worked with him. And like I say in the book, I think I was right at the end of that period of his life. So yeah. he was straight as a die after that. And, uh, you know, good luck to him. I mean, uh, that's what I think is so lovely of having worked with people who had a a wayward or you know had addictions early in their creative lives or whatever transcended them and then they became the kind of people who had the kind of lives we all could learn something from yeah. at the yeah. end so it, so yeah. there was, it's not always like oh yeah if you get into that it's always disaster no not necessarily it can be a learning curve it can be sure. something you go through and come out the other side you know sure and i mean i, I you know i just assume pretty much everybody was sorting some coke back in the 80s you know for it once Jesus, it became these, a problem, it, these what's A and R men, these A and R men sent me to the New Music Seminar in New York. Uh -huh. That was one of the first things when I was with EMI. They, you know, they flew me over first class on Pan Am. They put me up in a suite, and I was sort of ten days running a mock in New York, whatever. And these guys were so funny, man. They all had tans and extremely white teeth, and all these uh, multi um, uh, packs of vitamins and everything. And they were all snorting coke like crazy, <laughs> you know, like oh yes, I run, I run half a mile a day, and I take all these vitamins. And they were all off their chunk on coke all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it's it that's how we outsiders view the rock culture or rock business, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so funny um okay tell me about <clears throat> wait i lost my train of thought what where's my note what was i gonna say oh i remember now um you record dancing with the street or dancing in the street, obviously. And that's become kind of a meme, even though I still love that song. Yeah. And, yeah. um, I, I going back to clothes did are the clothes that Mick Jagger and David Bowie are wearing in that video. 
what they were wearing that night in the studio as they're recording the song or did like they wheel in a wardrobe or something I like that? I think they probably wheeled in a wardrobe. I was unaware of that necessarily, but I didn't see those clothes before okay. in, in the studio. I think they probably rustled up a stylist that both of them yeah. knew or something like that. And okay. they just bought along a bunch of stuff for them to wear. I'm sure uh-huh. that's happened. I'm sure okay. that, that happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, again, I'm just imagining them. They're already in those outfits and so they well let's just film a video right here how do you look back on i mean the the memification if that's a word of that song how do you feel about it i mean you know you can see how funny it is in the same way it's funny initially when you see the prodigy doing fire started with just the sound of sneakers squeaking in the tunnel and (laughs) and uh or the beach boys you know with their guitars Uh unplugged and and sounding out of tune and santana you know uh playing you know Uh stuff and it's all out of tune i mean i don't like those things very much because uh it's a shame to take the piss out of them so much uh Uh, you know especially the classic band things where they where someone puts a soundtrack of it sounding horrible and uh, some of them are just so borderline you think the people who'd never seen that band before might even think that's real or whatever and it's it's a bit cruel and awful but you know you can see how it's funny people will laugh at stuff and that's fine and you know i think bowie would have been fine with it too probably i I think he would have been fine with it and i you know i love i tell you what i love the um adam buxton cartoons of um bowie and eno and tony visconti making warsaw well you've seen those right no i don't think i have and the Le- lego aladdin insane you've seen those no i'll go oh, look okay. for it. i know who adam buxton I'll... is okay uh, adam buxton is a podcaster and dj he's a very clever uh-huh. funny guy he does yeah. the best impression of bowie's voice speaking voice <laughs> and he's made these little cartoons on youtube of um of the making of low uh with with uh, uh, with tony visconti and Eno, which are extremely funny and bowie okay. thought funny i think bowie saw them and thought they were very funny and he's also done a leg a little lego domestic scene of bowie and and angie discussing uh post ziggy options <laughs> and it's very they're very very funny and okay. those are they're very witty and funny i'll check it out i've listened to his podcast that's great um speaking of what was i just i just lost my train of thought again oh a couple quick things i want to ask you about can you does paul young really not have a nose well, that's what I saw. What it's in the book. What I saw. That's what I saw. <laughs> so I didn't check it out for myself. It was a right. it was a momentary, uh, you know, impression of Hunt uh, doing something to Paul. So as far as I know, he may have a nose now. But when I saw him, he didn't have a nose. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, snorting too much cocaine had basically hollowed out the insides of his nose, and you could press on it, and it would just go straight back into his face. It was right? like a jelly baby, yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, I remember I wanted to tell you, I wanted to ask you something. So a few months ago, I was interacting with Ertl Kizilke. Yeah. And um he he's a nice guy but he he's struggling i guess with he was a trip he would say yes i'll yeah, come on Erdl's a, Erdl's a trip for sure yes he is <laughs> he uh i guess he has dementia and so he would <clears throat> we'd be emailing and i'd he's like what do you want to talk about and i'd tell him and then instead of saving it for a podcast he would just start rambling the answers to my questions and then he would get mad that i asked him to do the podcast even though he had agreed i have dementia i can't be doing these kinds of things i but didn't know he had dementia i didn't know he had dementia but i do know that you know i don't want to badmouth the guy but he's no. a pro- he's a, been a problem for a lot of people Erdl, because he's one of the only the way i describe it is everybody who worked with bowie everybody and i know a lot of people now even this year i met carlos alomar properly and uh george murray and uh you know omar hakim and i i know these people and mike gas and i know them well and they all all of us agree that we all had more you know this wonderful opportunity to work alongside such a uh genius and all of us got more out than we put in and Erdl's one of the only people i've ever met who is somehow yeah. complains complains yeah. about his time with with bowie and um and that's that i could never get past that with Erdl. i just thought well hang on man you're a little ungrateful for this uh, opportunity you had i mean you know yeah. who are you who are any of us without that you know so yeah it was a trip i i even kept his emails in a folder in my inbox because they were so yeah. interesting to look through but in yeah. one of them he claims he did most of the work on blah 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 yeah 
he he did a lot of work that's for sure no that's yeah. that's for sure he did a lot of work with bowie stuff and he is a tremendously gifted multi-instrumentalist so he does he did do a lot of drum programming keyboard programming string parts vocals pianos he could do anything you know yeah. so he did a lot of stuff he used to make bowie used to use him like a kind of you know workhorse to, to make all this stuff for him uh, he did um i think when the wind blows um with bowie and uh yeah blah 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 i'm sure he used Erdl to lay down a lot of the original stuff because yeah. it wasn't a band album it was a it was put together with programming studio. And, uh, yeah. various uh, live elements but uh, Erdl did a lot of stuff on that record for sure he did yeah okay yeah uh, when he told me that i thought i it feels like news to me i didn't know that so oh speaking of which a total other uh topic i was thinking back to when we talked the first time i realized i had seen you in concert with iggy at the riot at riot fest a few oh, years yeah. ago here in colorado in Chicago, yeah well, there was the Chicago one and then a Colorado one. I went to the Colorado okay. one. Yeah. And I think that you played there. So we were trying to realize. And the other day, this kind of blew my mind. Uh, you know, Facebook has those memories. And I think it was last week, um, my Facebook memory was a bunch of shows that I had seen that day in previous years. And 11 or 12 years ago that day, I had seen Thomas at the Bluebird Theater here in Denver. That was me and too. I think, yeah. And For I sure. didn't realize that was you until yeah. I think you even called out the Bluebird specifically in the book or played in Denver or whatever. And well, uh, yeah, I, I mentioned some of those venues, those type of venues, which I really enjoy playing those, small, yes. those small, old, old fashioned theaters with all that history and everything. I love those places. Yeah, definitely played the, I've got a photograph of myself with my guitar over my back at the Bluebird in 2012 for sure. That's wild. Yes. I was at that show and uh, I live like down the street basically I'm maybe up two miles maybe from that venue. Okay. And, right. um, you also mentioned in the book, Jake rude, the DJ, yeah. <laughs> Jake, Jake is a fan of our show. And so I've gotten to know Jake over the last year or whatever. We email and text a lot. And I took a picture of that page when you mentioned him and texted it to him. Oh, and it, was, then, it was you. Okay. Yes. It was you. All right, because yes. I had a message from him, and I me only met him the once. We went on the current show in Minneapolis when we passed through there with Thomas, and we and we just did a session for his show. Yeah. Uh, and then I, you know, I just really liked the guy, and I thought he's, I thought he like what he's doing is great. And I mentioned him in the book, and then he, I got a message from him saying, "Oh, I, you know, somebody told me you mentioned me in the book, so that was you, that right?" That was me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's like the Richard Blade of the of the Midwest in in america in the united states and um he'd sent me the clip of the of you guys right for me that he mentioned yeah and i recognized that the hat thomas was wearing in the clip was the same hat he was wearing because i have a i took a picture well, of it was you the guys. same tour yeah, yeah it was the same tour it was that the, the time capsule tour right yeah 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 i didn't so, realize yeah. that you were there that night that's so yeah, funny yeah I, that was that was my last tour with thomas and it was a great thing we started off at south by southwest and we and we just uh uh, did the states and it was it was very it was very interesting lovely tour actually it was a really yeah. nice tour for me that was great just me and thomas and the drummer matt hector who later yeah. i played with iggy with uh, and that was the first time i'd toured with matt but it was just the three of us it was it was really great that tour. i enjoyed it i enjoyed that too that's the one and only time i've ever seen him live and i'm so glad i was able to be there mm. so what is speaking of playing live uh, is iggy done I guess. Do you think? Well, I'm done with Iggy. I don't know whether Iggy's done. I mean, he's still out there. But I mean, COVID and Brexit killed our lives with Iggy, the English band. Really, it just yeah. made sense for him. He did a side project with a French band, and then it made sense for him to carry on because they can travel in Europe without the extra expense and bureaucracy that it, it now causes us. You know, the problems of Brexit. Yeah. Um, and don't get me started on that crap. I know. But, you know I've seen your uh, posts. But, uh, yeah, yeah no it's terrible um but it's um and and covid as well you know so we uh -huh. we were getting emails at one point saying yeah we're going back after covid we'll all we'll, we'll come back together and then he carried on with the french band so it made it made complete sense to me that for him to do that i understand yeah. why he did that but um but but that looks like it with with iggy i don't you know unless something yeah. happens and we're suddenly uh, i'm suddenly wanted against some something i think that's probably it those five years but we had two we had five very good years 2014 yes. to 19 with with yeah. him uh, in his, the late period and i look back some great clips of the band uh, it, it, we did so some great good. stuff yeah so good Spe so that's what i was gonna ask you about what is your touring who what's your what 
what's the next thing that you're going to hit your wagon to? I have well, seen you posting, I think, are they the Lust for Life shows with Glenn yeah, Matlock? The, yeah, that's a, that's a friend of mine, Tom Wilcox, has put together this thing, and he puts together these projects with sidemen and ex-members of this, that, and the other, and uh, he conceives of these things and has the resources to put them on, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but the latest one was the Lust for Life tour, which we originally built around Tony Sales from the early tin machine and uh lust for life album with iggy and uh tony for tony underestimated the time it would get him take to get him a passport by about six months so he wasn't <laughs> able to do the tour we were coming up to it and it was a uh -huh. tour with clem burke on drums yeah. and katie puckrick singing and myself Luis and florence uh, another guitarist and keyboard player we're using and it was a sort of lust for life anniversary tribute to him we thought we'd like to do it uh -huh. um, but at the last minute tony couldn't make it and clem burke and i were on a zoom call going what the hell are we going to do this is like it's supposed to be happening in two weeks people have bought tickets yeah. Yeah. and then we called glenn matlock who obviously has been playing with blondie anyway had yeah. the iggy connection also along with me and clem <laughs> and uh and glenn said yes so we did we went ahead with glenn and it turned out to be a real really well received uh, and so we're doing or doing it again in in march 24 which is which will be fun yeah uh, that I, I thought i've never i've never i know those like sidemen all-star shows sort of exist but i don't think i've ever been to one does iggy have to be involved at all or sign off or approve or no, anything no no not at all we can go and play iggy pop songs anybody can you know uh -huh. it's not a problem so it's it's definitely a sort of uh you know if you like a tribute show uh yeah. with the you know i think a lot of these tributes if i don't like that some of the tribute bands the bowie ones and things where they try and do this accurate recreation of and have an impersonator up front and all that yeah I don't like that but i don't mind the ones where it's been authentic side people or authentic yeah. people of actually been involved they're quite creative i mean the, the mike garson ones i did were yeah. among my favorite things they were so good such yeah. a lovely feeling and this iggy one is similar really with clem and glenn and i that's uh, great that's that's a great little combo you know it really is and katie up front has been great and also i did send iggy uh, a couple of clips of the band just just to see you know because uh -huh. i I get that if, if he doesn't like it or whatever, I, you know, it's fine. Yeah. But uh, I sent him a couple and he just sent me back saying, you guys sound great. He was oh, really good. Yeah, and there are a lot, there's good audiences that go to these shows. And well, I mean, uh, they, these were small venues, like a couple of hundred people. And, um, but they were rabidly uh, attended and uh, a great vibe, a really sweaty rock and roll vibe, like high volume and yeah. lots of, it was they're very very enjoyable this time round we're doing slightly larger venues because cool. we sold out last time and so that's selling well for for, for 24 and yeah. i'd love to bring it to the states i really would no but again we, we, we're faced with uh, ever increasing visa uh, uh yeah. costs uh yeah. for, for work these days you it the gone are the days when you could just get a work permit for a year Mm -hmm. uh you know for a couple of thousand dollars or something and that was it now it's like six thousand dollars for each project you do and each, and each one is employers but it's just become ridiculously uh prohibitive in a certain way to work as an international musician it's becoming yeah. harder i even missed that. out this year i was asked to do uh, tom jones's band which would have been a lovely i what? would have loved to do that because he's like he does a great rootsy live show lots of blues yes i would have loved to do it but um because i didn't have the visa he went with a guy from texas or something oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh cool. man <laughs> what a kick in the nuts yeah tom, well, of everyone that i've never seen live tom is at the top of my list i think I, he's, uh, I think he's still still good you know yeah, i think yeah. he is too yeah. i would love to have seen that wow yeah. Um, yeah okay let's talk real quick about your paul mccartney experience if mm. i remember correctly chris hughes my fourth favorite producer of all time calls you and says, do you want to come play on a, on a, on a session with McCartney and Elvis Costello? Right. Yeah. And you well, go actually, in, Oh, yeah. go ahead. I don't know who we, I, Chris Hughes doesn't ring a bell. Was that, was that the guy? Wasn't was it? That? He produced, well, he produced a song. It ended up being just one song on flowers in the dirt. I thought maybe I'm conflating two different stories. Maybe I, it wasn't maybe Chris. So. It wasn't Chris Hughes. I, I, I think it was, I got a call from McCartney's office himself because oh, okay. I'd been on a live uh, TV show with him. And uh, Jonathan uh, Ross, got, right? Jonathan Ross, Last Resort. It's like the Letterman format. It's an English version of the Letterman format, really. Yeah. With a live band, and and we we I'd gone on that, and um, 
I'd done well at that. I mean, the, the clips are good, you know. And uh-huh. uh, he he'd, he'd then scoped me, headhunted me after that and said, come and join my band. Yeah. So it was a good, big opportunity for me, which I, I didn't. Chris, uh, had didn't, something to do with it. Okay, great. Go ahead. Didn't, didn't, didn't capitalize on it because we, again, I didn't really chime with him. We didn't really mm-hmm. get on as people so so much i couldn't really understand him he couldn't understand me i don't know i don't know what went wrong but it was um, a bit of a shame uh i've ended up on on a couple of uh records that came out it, the album was called flowers in the dirt and it was being produced mm-hmm. by elvis costello at that stage mm-hmm. um he went on to do work with steve lipson trevor horn's mm-hmm. main engineer steve and, was uh, on here last year and yep. phil ramone i think had something to do with it and um other people but and it came out but recently there was a reissue of flowers in the dirt which had uh some of the development versions of the songs before the final versions and i'm on a few of those and i'm credited so i did end up on a mccartney record for what it's worth (laughs) yeah isn't it something like there's already you and him aren't quite vibing and was it you that mentioned something about the ruddles having been on tv the night before and it's my crime (laughs) yeah and it was just it was just something you said it was no big deal and i if i remember correctly you said elvis costello was like uh, as soon as he mentioned the ruddles i knew he was done that's what he told me years later when i ran into him yeah i said because i was i was slightly nonplussed about why i lost a gig Uh and i thought well maybe i wasn't good enough for him maybe something else i don't know Uh um but elvis said no it was the ruttles that's what (laughs) i thought okay you know the ruttles was something that if if you some of your uh, viewers uh, don't don't know was a an affectionate pastiche of the beatles sure. made eric by idol. eric idol yeah. and actually jo- funded by george harrison i think yeah uh, mm-hmm. it was a very affectionate funny thing but obviously mccartney didn't didn't like it he didn't <laughs> like it he didn't like the piss-taking thing oh or he didn't like the slight fun it made of the beatles i guess <laughs> it was an irreverent thing uh-huh. uh, even now even now there's a version of cow and hen by the ruttles that's come out <laughs> on the internet <laughs> it's a classic oh it's that's funny. so it's come funny. on he's just got to yeah. laugh at himself I and know, i remember I you, <laughs> you interact with him later your paths cross and he's he doesn't remember you obviously oh hey kevin hey nice to meet you and you're like yeah, yeah. we worked together once yeah and you're like just, and he says, really what happened and you said you sacked me and then he just kind of turns and walks away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, introduced himself to my wife, you know. Yeah, and there's, there's another story about that wasn't didn't make it into the book, oh. uh, which is that you know my wife actually went to school with Heather McCartney, his daughter, and uh, really? and during a, an altercation in a bathroom, had had one of her front teeth broken by Heather slamming oh. her head into a sink. <laughs> oh <laughs> so we man. Both have, we both have slightly less than positive experiences with the McCartney family, <laughs> but um. Yeah, it was a fun. It was a. It was a. It was a session of Eno's singing group, uh, little yes. choir thing, and McCartney happened to be there because there was always somebody there who was uh-huh. shocking. And when he walked in, it's like, oh my god, there's David Byrne or there's the president of Zimbabwe or something, you know. Uh, but there was McCartney and James McCartney were there for a while, and uh-huh. like he either he didn't remember me or he didn't what didn't let on or something but it was a bit of a tumbleweed movement when <laughs> 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 unfinished so business it's unfinished yes. business that's what i say in the book and i still think it's that way i still think somewhere there's a reconciliation i even oh. wrote him a letter actually because <laughs> there's a, a, a an assistant of his a very close assistant of his who is now no longer in his employ he's retired but i've since become friendly with through you know mutual friends and uh, who's in my hometown of hastings because mccartney's only down the road i one of my country walks took me right past hog hill mill the other day oh, right man. outside his fence you know um and uh anyway this guy you know i i sort of was gonna think well should i should i write a letter of paul mccartney just sort of laying out all of this yeah. stuff and saying this is a this is unfortunate because i think i could have been we could have been good uh-huh. and um and then i, I never sent it <laughs> <laughs> such a great story okay that was one of the things that really piqued my mind if we talked about the elgins the singing group at that eno does i didn't remember this sounded amazing to me tell me about this singing group Uh, with eno it's it's elgins with a hard Elgin. okay yeah the elgins because elgin avenue is a is a is very near it's a big Ah. Near, near not in notting hill near where Eno uh, has his little uh lair and uh no it was just a little singing group he has it's a it's a 
uh, it's an a cappella singing group that meets socially round, stands round a table, drinks wine, flirts and laughs and, and sings unaccompanied gospel songs and things like that. And it's just a, a, a completely social thing about singing together and about that yeah. being a healthy pursuit for everyone. And I did join his group and became a very solid member of it for several years before I moved down here to the South coast. And I haven't been back because it, it was always just a Tuesday night for two or three hours. Uh, but it was a very fun, a very fun thing. Yes. And I did get to sing with some all extraordinary people, you know, and he didn't care who he, who came along or who he threw out as well. Uh -huh. you know? Some completely unknown people like the receptionist from the gym he goes to, who's a, one of the stalwarts and a great singer, or there'd be, you know, Jerry Hall would turn up and he'd throw her out, you know? Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. Fun, fun. He he had a Christmas party as well associated with that. I haven't written about that, but he had a every year. Eno has this Christmas party, uh, w which is built around the Elgin singing, but a, a much wider uh, yeah. group of people invited to to drink and uh, make merry in his in his uh, little studio there. And uh, those are really funny because nearly everyone I've been to, someone ends up in hospital. <laughs> What? <laughs> really? <laughs> and it's usually some really just sad accident. Like some woman gets really <laughs> drunk, uh, got really drunk one year and started and, you know, fell over and smashed her, you know, opened her wrists with some glass, you know, <laughs> accidentally, or someone else broke their leg, you know, tripping over oh. something. And, and it, for a few, few years, we used to laugh about it. It's just that it wasn't, you know, the most extraordinarily kind of culturally gifted and uh, polite middle class people yes. would go to these things and uh, and yet always someone would end up in a and e <laughs> oh my god that, that that feels like the ultimate just like the secret society where if you're invited you're uh, you're a made person i would love to and didn't it wasn't it capped off at like no more than like 20 or 25 people could be there at a time or something like well, that. Well, I mean, that, that would have been the largest possible group. I mean, generally the best groups were under 10 people. Okay. Uh, and you know, sometimes if you get more then then that would irritate him. I've written about that. It would irritate him because people would yeah. end up just chatting and, That's and, stuff. Right. and it's, fun it's funny that the, the first time I went along, he said, well, we, we were very serious about the singing and you mustn't talk to anyone or, you know, and all that. And that's all rubbish. It just ends up <laughs> as a very, uh, very funny kind of, uh, uh, anarchic kind of situation okay. um but very very good singing sometimes i've got a few little recordings which i'll never play to anyone of course of, yes of that of that bat, of that group singing together and sometimes it was really amazing oh yeah. wow okay <laughs> i have to ask i i sort of nudged you about this on facebook you say that the mccartney assignment saved you from having to go work with level 42 i'll cut this out if you want what's your beef with level 42 because i love them not not a beef it's just not my taste i just didn't really? like you know it's just, i just didn't go for it at uh, all you know so so that was it it was just a you know again it's a bit of an arch funny joke if if, if <laughs> level 42 had asked me i might have tried it out i don't know but they're just, they're just not really my taste it's not really my thing yeah. i mean i pride myself john on uh, you know on the on the happy accident of having worked with some very left field artists some 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 quite iconoclastic personalities you know who've who've tried to rip up the rule book and do something different and yeah. that's what i like and that's what i'm very happy yeah. uh, to have worked with and level 42 i just thought they were a bit too you know i get it too, i get it yeah. yeah they remind me of kind of like a more white version of earth wind and fire or something and i love earth wind and fire well, yeah you earth, mentioned wind, that fire would have asked me yes yes every that's time true. if level 42 then oh you know <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> I, I, I struggle with this i must must say i've struggled with this all my life about cultural appropriation of it and about things mm -hmm. because i i have studied and played in reggae bands i've been the only white member of black bands and i've and i've i've played I, I can play james brown funk you know i could have mm -hmm. slotted into james brown's band really easily as a guitar yeah. player i've studied catfish collins and all this and uh that's all great but and for a long time when i lived in portobello i was working with black musicians on black music a lot of jazz mm -hmm. things a lot of uh funk things a lot of reggae things a lot of uh, hip-hop things and mm -hmm. i did really steep myself in that culture musically but then i came out the other side thinking well some of some of that some of that kind of activity bothers me a little mm -hmm. some of it does you know some of it i get it when when it's a mixed genuinely mixed thing but when i see there's a band down here for instance uh, who shall remain nameless but they're a reggae band and they're a very very 
obsessive cultural uh you know uh they they know about reggae music they uh-huh. do and they sound really authentic but they're all white guys uh-huh. and i just look at them and i go don't know i just couldn't do that you know mm-hmm. and so i'm really glad i came out the other end and went back into some kind of rock roots which yeah. which felt more like a sort of thing i could do without yeah having to tread on eggs about cultural appropriation i know what you like. mean I I, uh, I wonder about this too, but let me. So they're in the news. You mentioned David Byrne. How did then? Do you feel about the Talking Heads? Do you feel like them doing working with Eno and making African influenced Fela Kuti influenced music is genuine or too close to the? I, I haven't heard any new output about Talking Heads. If you're talking about no, 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 no because it, Stop Making it. Sense has been yeah. re-released over yeah. here. Maybe it's not a thing over there, but that that concert film has been re-released in the last right. month or two. Right, it and has, they, you're right. And they came back together, not to perform, but to, to sure. promote it. Yeah. And um, so they're in the news all over the place these days. Well, if the, 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 the African influence in Talking Heads is fine. You know, okay. I don't have any problem with that. I only have a problem if it's a, if it's a reggae band of all white guys pretending yeah. that they're Jamaican. That's not, okay. that to me, that's a bit weird. I don't, I mean, obviously you can't stop influences. Yeah. I mean, crossing bound all kinds of boundaries. That's where everything has come from. You, we wouldn't have the Rolling Stones if it wasn't that's, for Mark that's Waters. My, that's what uh, I was getting at. Yeah. Absolutely, that, that's all. That's all completely understandable. I just uh-huh. don't like it when somebody's trying to be something they're not. You know, if you yeah. if you get white girls blacking up and doing hip hop mm-hmm. and trying, you know, I can see I that. Don't, I don't, it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> what about UB forty? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're a little bit of an exception again because they had they were a mixture. They had a mm-hmm. they they really had you know black members and they was mm-hmm. they were from that cult. You could see you can see an affection sometimes and are mm-hmm. kind of coming together of things like the two tone things like the specials mm-hmm. and Good all point. that. Yes. You, you can see that's all totally legit. It's working mm-hmm. class uh diversity at work you know mm-hmm. absolutely fine but mm-hmm. I, it's just when it's something literally pretending it's something not the, the worst of it i could possibly imagine is when i came across on the internet wayne cochran if you don't know who that is look no. him up fuck okay. me man he's like a white guy <laughs> with a big pompadour haircut who was who who actually copied james brown's famous oh. flames he copied it fully with a white band and he went out and and played to a sort of completely white audiences yeah. and copied james brown completely and it's terrible i mean it's just oh. like they go through the motions and you think oh, oh my god that's awful he just makes you want to go and watch james brown just to sort of clean your ears and eyes out that's the worst yeah wayne cochran look him up yeah okay okay all right we're coming up on an hour let me make sure let me look over my notes and make sure i touched on pretty much everything there are a couple of things i wrote down the drunk on christmas story and i can't remember what the drunk on christmas story i is. think it was when i was uh, working in a tower block and still a struggling musician i was working as a a, a rep and i found myself uh drunk on whiskey and taking a big ride in an elevator to do my last post round yes. as a post boy in an accountancy company or something. It was a temporary job. And then I ended up uh, passing out on, in a, in a toilet in a, yes. at the top floor of this thing and waking up on Christmas day. <laughs> Nobody knew I was there. That's right. <laughs> that is, that was the saddest thing I'd ever read. Bad. I Isn't couldn't believe bad? this. Terrible. I can't even remember. I can't remember anything about how I got home and it's 20 miles away. There must have been, I must have got a taxi or I must have got someone to pick me up or I can't remember, you know, but it was like, that's so sad, isn't it? Waking up at sort of absolutely drunk out of your head, waking up with a hangover with your arms around a toilet and in a dark tower block in the middle of the city. On Christmas morning of all places. (laughs) That is Your family is probably like, where is Kevin? (laughs) Yeah, where is he? He's supposed to be here wrapped up, (laughs) you know, opening presents with us, you know? Oh, Oh, man. (laughs) Okay, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'll cut this out if you want, but you mentioned it. Your brother Ross, uh, who you were really close to, and his death, and you mentioned afterwards sort of the – the headspace you were in where you started to date and have sex with his girlfriends and wear his clothes. And I thought, what is the psychology behind that? I, do you know, 
I'll cut it. I'll cut this out if you want me to. No, you could. You know, I, I'm happy to be honest about these things. I don't know. I mean, I think it was just to sort of to feel a connection with him. Really, yeah. that's all. Just to kind of slightly absorb him in in a way. You know, yeah. to feel connected with him even after he'd gone. And like I say, you know, the, my solo album has those two skulls on the cover, mm -hmm. right? And that's that's me and him. You know, mm -hmm. and I didn't realize that. I don't realize he's there. Uh, you know, this is how we how we cope with grief and death and loss is yeah. a constant theme in my thoughts and my work. I even lost a cat. I had to take a cat to the vets. My favorite. Well, I've got three cats, and my favorite cat passed from this world yesterday. I had to oh. take him and stroke his head while he was put to sleep in the vets. Yes. You know, and he went very peacefully. But God, it would choke me right yes. up. I was couldn't. I was in bits the whole day yesterday oh. because it was the kindest thing I could do. He had heart failure. His lungs had collapsed. He wasn't going yeah. anywhere. But it was like it was. It's just so bad. And even today, I woke up thinking, "Where's my little scooter?" You know, he's <laughs> he's my friend who comes and sits with me, and he's so yes. presence. You know, this is what we do. But then we none of us are here for forever, are we? You know, so no, no, we're yeah. not. Oh yeah. man. Okay. Uh, one other little bit I want to mention at the very end. You talk about drummers. I happen to be listening to Rush. As yeah. you're saying, why Neil Peart uh, <laughs> isn't your favorite drummer? Or why That's my thing. most unpopular musical opinion. I think. Well, you know, I Nick actually Peart. agree with you because to me, <laughs> Bonham, who is the ultimate rock and roll drummer, because he hit hits sure. hard and it accents the For power sure. of rock and roll. Neil Peart sure. is probably the best technical drummer, and if that's your thing, that's fine. But cool. I want rock. You know, well, that's it. I mean, it's it's only a matter of taste. This for to me, Neil Neil Peart's beats are always so square and so fucking. They're just so unmusical. They just don't. They're just so polite. There's something so unadventurous about it all. And it's like you can you can you know what's coming next. You know, he's mathematically correct in every way, but it just lacks feeling and energy and the flaws that make human beings so great. You know, <laughs> to me, yeah. yeah. I just thought it was so crazy that I was listening to Time Stand Still by Rush when I read that right. uh, Rush okay. section of your Sorry. book. That was so funny. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's totally fine. I like Rush too, but I agree yeah. with you. I know what you're saying about Neil and drumming. Yeah. It's technical. It's it's like Steve Vai playing the guitar or something. It's like, yes, that's incredible, but that's technical stuff. That's Steve not what really I like. appeals Steve to Steve I like, but okay. Ingwie Malmsteen, you know, yes. someone like Ingwie Malmsteen. It's just, it's just sort of, you know, yeah, everyone's dazzled by the technique, but so yeah. what? It doesn't yeah. say anything, you know. I it know. doesn't really say anything except look at me, how great am I? And I, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear somebody struggling and saying uh -huh. something important and saying something warm to you, you know. Yes. Yeah. A little bit of trivia. As I said last week, I think it was, that when my Facebook memory said who I had seen in concert that day and Thomas Dolby was 11 years ago, 12 years ago, on that exact same day, in that exact same venue, I saw Ingve Malmsteen. Did you? Interesting? Yes. Right. <laughs> they both popped up. Exactly. That interesting. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was funny. The whole, his whole back splash or whatever is Marshall amps stacked floor to ceiling. For sure. And, uh, the whole band makes, uh, are they're squeezed together on like a third of the stage and yeah. the other two thirds of the stage is his to roam yeah. around. Yeah. And, uh, he's got a million, uh, guitar picks that he's constantly flicking out. And when they, yeah. when he runs out, he's in the middle of a solo and he motions for the guy on the side to come bring out more picks. <laughs> and then he also, there's someone whose job it is to manage the smoke machine. And if it's not on, he'll be like, Hey, you know, in smoke. the middle of a solo, like get it, <laughs> and someone will press the smoke. And if they're not there, he'll go over and press it himself so that the smoke comes out. Anyway, oh, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, okay, Show last question for you. Go on. You mentioned so the thing. There's being a lot of things you're not uh, credited on. Is there anything we would know that is that you take some ownership of? I uh, can't think off the top of my head. I mean, in England, it's the World Service of the BBC. The oh. the idents that happen in the middle of the night is my my telecaster. It's all my you know, and the and the panorama news program. It's my guitar that's all over uh -huh. that. Things like that. But I d I don't know whether there's anything super well known in in that I okay. played on that uh, I, I that I wouldn't have had credit on particularly. I don't yeah. think so. 
I don't okay. think so. Anyway, it's been really nice chatting with you, John, today. You too, Kevin. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It means a lot. You're the best. All right, there you have it. Kevin Armstrong, absolute beginner. Uh, memoirs of the world's greatest, least known guitarist. It's a really, really fun book. I hope you guys check it out and enjoy it. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. That is by far my favorite holiday. It's just about food and family and fun and football. That's all you need. By the way, we went and saw The Holdovers yesterday. Such a great movie. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. We loved it. Anyway, a huge thank you to Kevin for talking with me. And uh, maybe we'll have to do this again sometime for a fourth reason, whatever that might be. Uh, we still have a book, not a book club. We still have a panel discussion and a uh, deep dive in the can with another book club being recorded this week. So there's just a steady stream of good content coming your way. Anyway, thanks everybody. Oh, and I want to close it out. I forgot to mention. I want to close it out with this song right here, The Leukocytes of Love. This is off his solo album, Run, that came out a few years ago. I loved this album. Uh, it was one of my favorite albums of that year. It is not sadly streaming. Otherwise, I would want to play this song and others from it in Music League with all of you. But uh, anyway, you'll have to check out a hard copy or buy it on Amazon or whatever. Same with the book, which I don't think has even come out in the States yet. It might be coming out in the new year. Anyway, do your homework. You know how to use Google. Okay? We love you all. 